Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. A hundred years ago, a hitherto obscure and unremarkable Egyptian became a household name, Tutankhamun. Who was he? What treasures were found in his tomb? And were those who excavated his grave really cursed? Find out in this episode. It's believed Tutankhamun was born in 1341 BC. To add some historical context, by that time, the major pyramids in Egypt were already ancient, having been constructed more than a thousand years beforehand. Contemporary to King Tut was the Minoan civilization, the demise of which some people believed spawned the legend of Atlantis as popularized some 800 years later. King Tut preceded the time of Jesus by 13 centuries, which is a gap equivalent to the end of the Dark Ages as relates to the 21st century. Suffice to say, it was a long time ago, which means records are scarce. Then as now, incoming rulers had a tendency to criticize their predecessors, but the ancient Egyptians took this to a whole new level, sometimes destroying statues, plaques, and monuments in an attempt to obliterate the memory of a deceased pharaoh. And this is precisely what happened to Tutankhamun, as five years after his death, the new pharaoh, Horemheb, decided to banish the memory of his immediate predecessors. It's assumed this was because they were involved in heresy. It all began during the reign of Amenhotep IV, who reigned when Tutankhamun was born. Now by this time, Egypt had a nice array of deities, including old favorites such as Osiris and Anubis. But over time, Amenhotep became increasingly obsessed with one hitherto obscure god, Aten, the disk of the sun, who traditionally been viewed as one aspect of the sun god Ra. Early in his reign, Amenhotep decreed that Aten was the supreme god, ranking ahead of his counterparts, rather like Zeus in Greek mythology. But a few years later, he further announced that the other gods were all phonies, and that Aten was the only god. Worship of these other deities was forbidden, and to emphasize the importance of Aten, Amenhotep decided to abandon Thebes and built a new capital, Akhenaten, which means Horizon of Aten. Now, as luck would have it, Amenhotep also revealed that he was the sole emissary between this solitary god and mankind and consequently, he changed his own name to Akhenaten, which means effective for Aten. The new capital was later abandoned by Horemheb when he rolled back Akhenaten's changes, and in the process, virtually erased him and King Tut from history. While much of his life is shrouded in mystery, we do know that Tutankhamun's birth name 
was actually Tutankhaten, which means, in the living image of, you've guessed it, Aten. We don't know for sure, but at least one ancient inscription refers to Tut as being the son of the king. This has led most scholars to conclude that his father was the heretic, Akhenaten. The identity of his mother is even murkier. Some have speculated that his mother was actually his sister, Mekhetaten, who according to this theory married her own father along with her sisters. But given that she died when she was probably only about 10 years old, this incestuous parentage seems unlikely. A DNA study of the mummified remains suggested that his mother was a nameless individual referred to simply as the younger lady whose tomb was nearby. But critics have pointed out that in the most incestuous bloodlines of the Egyptian royalty, unusually close matches may be found among cousins, meaning relationship may not be as close as it appears. Moreover, Tut's own DNA was incomplete, causing some skeptics to dismiss the validity of these tests altogether. But even if the younger lady was King Tut's mum, it really doesn't help us because we don't know who the younger lady was. Some people have theorized that she was Nefertiti, the first wife of Akhenaten and another alleged mother of Tutankhamun according to some sources. But the truth is we just don't know. And barring some discovery of a detailed family tree, it's unlikely we will ever unravel the mystery of his lineage. His sister may or may not have been his mom, but one of his sisters, or possibly a half-sister, was his wife. Ancus Nanum and King Tut married when he assumed the throne at the age of eight. They had two children, neither of whom survived infancy. But his problems weren't limited to his home. He reigned in the midst of the New Kingdom era, known generally as the Golden Age of Egypt, and for good reason. The pharaohs had grown rich on the back of gold mines in Nubia, which is now in present-day Sudan. But they didn't have quite so much copper or tin, the constituent elements needed to make bronze from which the weapons of the day were fashioned. In contrast, the Hittite army was nearby military powerhouse, and it posed an increasing threat to the Egyptian empire. Under Akhenaten, the country had reached a comparative low point with a struggling economy, pockets of civil unrest, and at best, lukewarm relations with previously important allies. King Tutankhamun set about trying to improve these relations. He also placated the religious sects by rolling back Akhenaten's reforms and reinstituting the pantheon of gods. Whether it was his idea or someone else's, this newly found religious freedom extended to Tutankhamun himself being deified while alive. This was something that typically only happened after a pharaoh had died. It was at this point that his name was tweaked to drop the mention of Aten and instead reference another god, Amun. Hence he became Tutankhamun instead of Tutankhaten. In the same vein, he abandoned the new capital city and had Akhenaten's remains removed from his tomb and reburied in the Valley of the Kings across the Nile from Thebes. Tutankhamun's reign only lasted about 10 years. But contrary to the popular misconception, 
he didn't die as a boy. He was about 19 years old when he passed away, not old by any means, but in terms of life expectancy at the time, he would have been regarded as a mature adult as his reign ended. The cause of his death is another mystery. Damage to the back of his skull led archaeologists to believe he died from a blow to the head. Most people now believe his skull was damaged post-mortem. Scientists who have studied his remains have suggested he suffered from a wide variety of ailments, including some hereditary conditions, such as a cleft palate, bone issues, and even a clubbed foot. In that respect, if some or all of these theories are true, he has something in common with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles II, whose own multitude of health problems were blamed on his family's intense inbreeding. Coming from a similarly narrow gene pool, it's possible Tut also suffered as a result of his family's genetics. Recently though, tests have found traces of malaria in his bones. Whether he was exposed to infection, or whether it was enough to kill him remains a mystery. Currently, there is no consensus on his cause of death. But with no natural born heirs, the deceased king was buried in a small tomb consisting of four separate chambers, and it was all but lost to history for 3,000 years until his tomb was discovered in 1922. Archaeologists had started taking a serious interest in Egypt during the 1850s. By the turn of the 20th century, wealthy tourists were exploring ancient sites, and by that time the country had come under British rule. American businessman Theodore Davis bankrolled the first large-scale excavation in 1905. But a decade later, Davis shut down his operation and it appeared that anything worth excavating had been unearthed. But George Herbert, the Earl of Carnarvon, was among the few optimists who thought there was more treasure to be found. He acquired the rights to succeed Davis's mission and enlisted the help of compatriot Howard Carter. Now Carnarvon was a racehorse owner, statesman, and an establishment figure in the UK, the kind of individual who had the resources to embark on what looked like to many to be a search for fool's gold. But money and status apart, he had another reason for being in Egypt, ill health. Now in his 50s, he'd endured a series of lung infections and doctors advised him that the cold, damp, and in those days, heavily polluted air of London was no good for his health. Egypt was a spot in the empire that offered warm, dry weather and a respite from his bronchial problems. In 1914, just months after Carnarvon's team gained access to the Valley of the Kings, Egypt took on another purpose. It became a training ground for troops from around the British Empire as they prepared for war in Gallipoli with the Ottomans who'd ruled Egypt just 30 years earlier. Logistics prevented significant excavation work until the war was entering its last stages in late 1917. Howard Carter, the self-trained archaeologist and antiquities dealer, was eager to resume his work after a few years acting as a courier and translator for the British Army. But the long wait was followed by an even longer period of disappointment. Carter's crew included many Egyptians, 
People who, based on skill and knowledge, were equally entitled to call themselves archaeologists, but who at the time were simply referred to as foremen or labourers by the British. The team spent five years uncovering long-since looted tombs and enclaves holding little more than shards and rubble. Carnarvon was frustrated at the lack of progress and began to wonder if Theodore Davis was correct in his earlier proclamation that the Valley of Tombs is now exhausted. In fact, he considered shutting down the operation altogether until in classic Detective Colombo style, Carter said he needed to look at one more thing. He convinced Carnarvon to allow him to re-examine an area he'd explored two years earlier. The ground was covered in debris, some of it rock removed from nearby tombs. Other parts had been swept into the valley during seasonal floods. It was a huge undertaking to clear the rocks. But on the 1st of November, 1922, Carter's team set about doing just that. Now there are conflicting stories as to what exactly happened next. Carter himself says that one of his crew found a step under a rock. Other reports say a boy, not even involved in the digging, tripped on a boulder and exposed a stairway. On that same day, the 4th of November, 1922, Carter's crew cleared the rock blocking the stairway and found that at its base stood a wall. Carter chipped a hole through the wall, first using a candle to check for poisonous gases before peering in. There wasn't a lot visible except plain walls and rubble, but crucially, the small hallway was sealed so there was every likelihood there were treasures inside. It was enough to convince Carter to suspend the dig until his patron, Lord Carnarvon, could arrive from England. Three weeks later, work resumed in the presence of Carnarvon and his wife, plus Carter's friend and colleague, Arthur Callender. The debris beyond the first wall contained broken artifacts related to a variety of kings, but excitement kicked up several notches when Carter breached the second wall. Peering inside, with the only illumination provided by candlelight, he famously declared that the next chamber held wonderful things. And indeed it did. Three ornately decorated beds, chariots, and walls that were drab and bare, but everything else inside was treasure. It was a rare find indeed, in an area where people had been robbing graves for the last 2,000 years. But this first room, the antechamber, was only the beginning. The entire tomb complex contained four rooms. It was an unusually small tomb for a pharaoh, leading to speculation that it was either built in a hurry, or that his successor had co-opted Tutankhamun's presumably larger intended resting place for himself. Despite being hidden under rocks for untold centuries, there was evidence that bandits had accessed the tomb in the past. Some of the walls were damaged, and the wall leading to the burial chamber appeared to have been patched up. But whatever the intentions of these ancient grave robbers, they left plenty of loot behind. The tomb contained a mix of religious items such as statues and ceremonial objects, as well as simple household items. The spiritual objects were to help Tutankhamun get to another realm. The mundane objects, perhaps, were intended for his use once he got there. 
The burial chamber had been breached by interlopers of the bygone era, but they hadn't done much more than peer inside, probably realising they wouldn't be able to remove the immense sarcophagus that filled almost the entire room. Fortunately for Carter, the treasure room was only accessible through the rear of this chamber. Therefore, the jewellery and golden objects had lain undisturbed for 3,000 years. The visible tomb was a stone monument in which were three coffins, rather like Russian dolls, with each one containing the next which was slightly smaller. The outer two were wooden but decorated with gold. The inner coffin was the elaborate golden coffin now famous across the world. However, it didn't appear quite so grand when first opened. At the time, it was covered in a layer of brown sludge. It's been suggested this was the remnant of some kind of burial ointment that was used during funerary services. The coffin itself was molded from 240 pounds of solid gold. Inside, the mummy of the pharaoh wore an elaborate headdress, also made of gold but decorated with glass and gems. By this time, it was obvious the tomb belonged to Tutankhamun, since his name was dotted all over the place. However, at various points on the coffins and elsewhere, Egyptologists have suggested there is some evidence of alterations having been made, and that another name appeared on some of these objects before King Tut's. Some have suggested perhaps the coffin was designed for his sister, but repurposed when he suddenly died. This theory was bolstered by the seemingly feminine design of the casket, but later analysis of his body found that he had large hips and a small waist more typical of a female, something which may have been due to a genetic condition. It's also possible that any name change was due to the fact that Tutankhamun himself changed his name when he ditched his allegiance to Artan, but again, there's no clear consensus on any of these alterations. Despite being buried under the rock, the tomb was exposed to water over time, as flood water seeped in. This meant wooden artifacts were swollen, and just about everything was covered in a pink, dusty layer, most likely mould. Removing the artifacts was a laborious process. Some items were stored in the vacant nearby tombs, while undergoing rudimentary restoration to protect them before they were moved to Cairo. During this process, electric lighting was added to the tombs, and tourists from nearby Luxor began flooding to the area. News of this discovery made international news, but controversially, the Times of London negotiated exclusive access to the site. Their photographer sent pictures of the extraordinary finds back to England, where they were published, before the photos were offered, for a price, to other publications, including those back in Egypt. This quickly became a bone of contention, especially as Egypt had been given independence from the UK just months before. King Tut's treasure was like nothing the modern world had seen, and reminded the Egyptians of the glorious empire that existed long before England was even on the map. With patriotism and indeed nationalism gripping the nation, Egyptians were outraged that the British were controlling access to the details of the find. In the ensuing years, 
Battles raged over access to the site, with Carter himself becoming involved in lawsuits. And the assassination of British Major General Lee Stack by nationalists further heightened tensions between London and Cairo. Ultimately, it took 10 years to complete the excavation of the tomb, with almost 6,000 items being recovered, only a handful of which were damaged beyond repair. Beyond Tutankhamun's reign and the discovery of its tomb, a third chapter to this epic story developed in the 1930s, as the world became aware of the curse of Tutankhamun. The idea of a cursed tomb is nothing new. In fact, it's found in cultures all around the world. Genghis Khan famously put a curse on his own tomb, and to hide its location, he killed everyone involved in digging it. But there was nothing at all in or around Tutankhamun's tomb to suggest that it was cursed. In fact, curses on Egyptian tombs were highly unusual in this era, although archaeologists have found engravings warning of curses on tombs from the millennia before his time. But when media reports of at least nine people involved with the discovery dropping dead, the idea of King Tut's curse spread like wildfire. While there is something inherently creepy about digging up anyone's gravesite, the idea of doom attached to a deceased Egyptian's tomb specifically made its way into the public domain a century earlier, when a British writer produced a proto-sci-fi novel entitled The Mummy, A Tale of the 22nd Century. It featured the mummified ancient pharaoh, Cheops, rising from the dead. While he wasn't a Machiavellian zombie, the book did promulgate the idea that as a Tomb Raider, you might get more than you bargained for. The proverbial canary in the coal mine with regards to King Tut's tomb was a canary in a cage, a pet kept by Howard Carter. On the very day Carter entered the tomb, one of his associates found the canary dead at his home. It had been killed by a cobra, the same snake that adorned Tutankhamun's death mask. Now this particular variety of cobra was not common in the area, so it was immediately viewed as a portent of doom by the locals. In the aftermath, English writer Marie Sorelli penned a piece in a New York newspaper suggesting anyone involved with the tomb was doomed. One month later, Lord Carnarvon, the man bankrolling the project, dropped dead. George Gould, an American financier who'd visited the tomb in 1923, fell ill and died. Sir Bruce Ingram didn't die, but his house burnt down, and then after being rebuilt it was flooded, and all this came after Howard Carter gave him a macabre paperweight, a mummified hand. Then there was Sir Archibald Reed, a radiologist who x-rayed Tutankhamun's hand, immediately became sick and died. Arthur Mace, one of the excavators, died of arsenic poisoning, while Carter's secretary was smothered in his bed, and Lord Carnarvon's brother died. One of the early theories was that all these people, and there were a handful of others I didn't mention, died because they were exposed to toxic fungi whilst in the tomb. Remember the pink substance covering everything? Well, it was a nice theory, based on circumstantial evidence, but if you delve deeper, it fell apart. For one thing, Numerous workers were in and out of the tomb, 
never exhibited any symptoms of any kind of toxic exposure. In fact, the medical journal The Lancet released a lengthy debunking of the fungus theory. But rumours of a curse persisted. Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, was notable as an advocate of the curse idea. But then again, he was also famously duped by two small children into believing that fairies were real. Had there been a legitimate curse, one would have expected Howard Carter, the lead excavator, to be the first man struck down. He did indeed die, and many people tied his death to this curse, but it was in 1939, when he was 64 years old. Aside from the 17 year gap between the excavation and his demise, there was also the fact that he died within the statistical norms of the man of his era. As too did Lord Carnarvon. He was 57 when a mosquito bite became infected and killed him, but he had serious underlying health conditions that had driven him to the warm climate in Egypt in the first place. His demise made international headlines, but it didn't come as a surprise to his doctors. Other people tied to the curse never even visited the site. For example, Aaron Ember, an Egyptologist, died in a house fire when he was trying to save a manuscript he'd written called the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The mere fact he knew some of the archaeologists involved with King Tut was enough for the media to tie him to the curse. Likewise, Carnarvon's dead brother wasn't even involved with Tutankhamun, and there was a gap of two years before Mace's poisoning, and seven years before Carter's secretary died. So we either have a very inefficient spectre, intermittently killing people over a long period of time, or we have what statisticians tell us is a group of people who died within actuarial norms and a general public salivating over a myth conjured up by the press. But whether the curse is real or imagined, his treasure means Tutankhamun's memory will be treasured for years to come. Stone the Flaming Crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.